Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Sunday night edition of the Dunk Time Basketball Podcast. Game two in the books. It was a 132-113 Golden State Warriors victory. Pulling away after it was 67-64. At the half, we'll get deep into this game and also talk about the offseason for the Utah Jets. Certainly fascinating with the free agency of Gordon Hayward and many others, as well as many potential trade pieces on that roster. Sponsored today by Helix Sleep. HelixSleep.com slash Capspace is your URL to get $50 off a custom mattress. And ZipRecruiter. Post jobs for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Capspace. So the question I wanted to lead off with here, Danny, is that this can cleveland play any better than they did tonight yeah i think they can especially better than they played in the second half i mean the first half they did a lot of things right i thought lebron was great again i thought kevin love did a really nice job Kyrie could hit more shots even though he's always going to have tough attempts against the warriors just because they have guys like clay thompson that they can throw on him who are going to do a good job but the bigger kind of structural thing and i think this is what you're getting at is this was a lot closer especially early on to the kind of game that Cleveland looked like they wanted and yet they were still down at halftime and then got run pretty handily in the second half yeah the Warriors turned it over like crazy Cleveland had a 17% steal rate that they got zero steals in all of game one and they had 10 steals in the first half of game two uh, so and they came out with much greater defensive intensity they moved LeBron off of Kevin Durant uh, for a time Draymond Green was again in foul trouble, which helped their offense. They got out on the fast break successfully at times. LeBron James was an absolute freight train. He had 8 of 12 shooting, 18 points, 10 assists at the half. Kevin Love got going. They got a little bit more for some of their three-point shooters. Amon Shumpert had a nice half defensively. And after all that, they were still down three, and they still gave up 67 points to the Warriors, despite that crazy turnover percentage that the Warriors had. It was a ridiculously fast pace, by the way. First half, 58 possessions, uh, in part due to all, all the turnovers and the lack of offensive rebounds. There was, it was, the first quarter was 40-34, to 34, and there were 32 possessions a team, which is just, that's like 1960s level of pace uh since you know your average game has probably you know 95 possessions or so to have 32 in the, in the first quarter is ridiculous i just i don't know how they stopped them they did everything they could in that first half and they still gave up 67 points what I fell back to a little bit as I was thinking about this game is the idea of shot quality. And while teams can outperform that, you know, just because you're getting worse shots does not mean you're going to lose the game or anything like that. It is very, very hard to overcome without a few other big factors in your favor. And absent some sort of structural change, I don't know what the argument is that Cleveland can reliably take better shots than the Warriors can. Yeah, I thought the three 
three-point shooting was interesting. Obviously, Golden State, 42%, 18 of 43. NBA Finals record, 18 three-pointers. Cleveland, only 8 out of 29, 28% shot poorly again from behind the three-point line. But especially during the competitive portion of the game, they only had 26 three-point attempts. That's just not enough. They cannot beat the Warriors by doing that. And they have at least succeeded since the first half of game one of cutting off the Warriors' access to the basket. Now, when they do get there, they get easy buckets. But they only had 11 shots at the rim in the first half and then only eight in the second half, but they went 16 out of 19 at the rim. But that's, you know, basically less shots at the rim than the lowest team in the league had on a per-game basis. And this is a fast-paced game. But they gave up just a crap load of three-pointers. In the second half, the Warriors, the competitive portion of the game, again, not excluding garbage time, the Warriors took 37 field goal attempts. 20 of them were threes, and they made nine of them. And I don't know how Cleveland can possibly run them off the three-point line and defend the rim I mean, you just gotta basically hope that they miss at this point and clay thompson kevin durant and stephen curry did not do that they combined for eight out of 15 on three-pointers in that second half i think one of the other points that we should bring up early is just kevin durant's performance in this game made more impressive by the absence for large portions of this game of draymond green draymond green basically played this entire game in foul trouble and that led to two significant sequences that i focused on one was durant coming in just 10 seconds into the second quarter because Draymond picked up his third foul in those 10 seconds. And then he played at power forward with the second unit. They, I think they expanded the lead a little bit, but it was, you know, kind of. No, it was a lot. It was a quick quick expansion, right? Yeah, it was was 10 to 1 during that period uh, when LeBron was out of the game. He went out at the start of the second quarter this time. And And uh, Durant was not even on the floor for that one technically because that was the foul that Green committed. So, but then I was, sorry, I was jumping in with my second one, which was not as much of an expansion but that was when they played Durant at center and so they went to that in the third quarter after Green picked up his fourth foul and in that stretch I think they pushed the lead from 10 to 14 but they were able to handle a time that LeBron was on the floor for that entire stretch and just weather the storm more more than enough and that was impressive too yeah I I thought that that was very interesting I liked Tyron Lue's approach which was as soon as Draymond Green got his fourth foul he went to Channing Fry at center, thinking that he could have an advantage against Pachulia and t- taking Tristan Thompson out of the game. And Steve Kerr, I thought, did very well to counter by just going to Kevin Durant at center at that point. And Durant, I mean, this might have been the best two-way game I've ever seen him play. I mean, I can't, I don't have his, that encyclopedic of a knowledge of his OKC games. I mean, certainly that 40-point game he had in game four against Kawhi Leonard in the semifinals last year was good. But I mean, he, this is really the first time that I can recall that he's played center like this in a playoff game and just the amount of effort that it was taking him I mean and I thought that third quarter when both teams were going small they went with LeBron Cleveland did at center for a time there as well once it became clear that Fry wouldn't work with that lineup I actually asked Ty Lue about that stretch and I think he thought I was trying to criticize him for putting in Fry or leaving him in too much I thought actually putting going to Fry was a good move it's just Kerr countered it in a way that wasn't necessarily expected um but it 
it was uh really i thought some of the just most intense exhausting basketball that you're ever gonna see i mean for these guys lebron kd who all of a sudden are just the absolute biggest guys on the floor and are just doing absolutely everything almost like it's like a high school game or something and they're like playing center on defense and playing you know point guard or like the main being the main scorer on offense it was really just a thrilling third quarter and it didn't seem like the Warriors were out playing them that much and then you looked up at the end of the quarter and they're up 14. Yeah it, it was pretty amazing and just in terms of Durant's overall exertion and this the strain that was put on him just by the absence of, of Green who played less than 25 minutes in this game and I thought he was up to it. Something that surprised me I actually looked this up because I was expecting a different result. This year the Warriors only played 13 and a half minutes per game in the games they both played with Durant and Green and in the minutes where Durant played in Green did not. Their defensive rating was 104.1. I did not expect that it was going to be as good as it was. Yeah, and this one, they still did not defend all that well with Green off the floor, but they didn't need to because you've got Kevin Durant at center and you've just like got one of the best scoring lineups probably that's ever been put out there in NBA history with Kevin Durant at center, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson all out there at the same time. Like it was just completely ridiculous and unstoppable. And it's just, I mean, the other thing that I thought of too for Cleveland on this idea that hey you know can they really play better and there are ways that they can we'll get to that but I don't know how the hell Kevin Love's supposed to play any better than he did today I mean given what his limitations are defensively and he was outstanding in the post he took advantage of Green's foul trouble got a couple of fouls on him got that fourth foul on him with some great work in the post really got a fifth foul on him as well it really was outstanding work from him overall he put up 12 of 23 from the field 27 points wasn't as much of a factor on the glass in this game but didn't need to be they had plenty of defensive rebounding that wasn't an issue but especially when they go to a smaller unit all they got to do is run a pick and roll with him and then he's got to guard Steph Curry or Kevin Durant and I think he's succeeded maybe on one possession of having to do that in this entire game is one in the first half, I think, where he, he actually forced Durant to the baseline and forced him to take a, a tough J when they brought somebody over to the strong side zone to help him out. Other than that, he's been dead meat every single time. And I don't think there's anything they can do about that. That's just the realities of who Kevin Love is as a player. So they're going to try maybe play some conventional pick and roll defense, and that's not really going to work either. On top of that, Cleveland just doesn't have the defensive personnel anywhere, not in their starters, not on their bench, to make up for that. Love is a special offensive player. He his ability just kind of he had a couple of just interesting shooting plays in this game one where it was kind of like a pump fake jab step and did it where you almost never see a, a bit legit big guy do that and he's he's special in that way and he was great as you said getting Draymond fouls I thought he did a wonderful job there and you can overcome players like that teams have in the past they will in the future but Cleveland can't and I mean Tristan Thompson I understand that they've gotten worked in the minutes that he has played and he he only played 21 a little under 21 and a half minutes in this game I don't think they can beat the Warriors by playing that small style even if it you know maybe it feels like they get a bigger chance and I understand I, I understand that that you know the idea of going big when the other team goes small when their smalls are so so good but if you only have two good defensive players you better play them yeah let's talk more about Tristan in a second but first this from ZipRecruiter recruitment was obviously a big theme for the Golden State Warriors always has been in NBA free agency but if you're trying to recruit talent for your business where do you go to find it 
your company needs the right people to be the best, but you got to know where to focus your efforts efficiently because there are a ton of job sites out there. When I was an attorney, for example, we didn't really know, should we post on like the San Francisco Lawyers Magazine? Should we just post on Craigslist? We actually found some good candidates there. More national job sites. Like You really had no idea how to do it. And then you have to manage the logins for all those. How are you going to communicate with these people? You got to juggle all these phone calls you can't even remember which candidate went through which service now though ZipRecruiter gives you the ability to post on all the top job sites 100 plus in fact with merely one click their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your position that's why they're different they don't depend on candidates finding you ZipRecruiter finds them and over 80 percent of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours they also allow you to screen rate and manage candidates all within their easy to use dashboard and of course it wouldn't be a dunked on ad if you didn't get a deal and if there weren't also a url to let know that you came from us that in this case ziprecruiter.com slash cap space which of course we'll be discussing in great detail with the utah jazz that slash cap space url is easy to remember for that reason once again ziprecruiter.com slash cap space try it for free today ziprecruiter.com slash cap space I agree. It seems like Thompson has been ineffective, Tristan Thompson. I think part of that is because Zaza Pachulia is one of the best box out guys in the league, and he's actually a really good matchup for Tristan Thompson on the glass. I mean, Thompson generally throws dudes around, but Pachulia is 275. And it's really, I mean, especially when you consider that he can't jump over a phone book, an outstanding rebounder. But I think that that's led to Ty Lu going away from him too early because he's not effective early on, especially on the offensive glass against Pachulia. But I think you need to try him more against their other lineups as well. He's more likely to be effective, I think, against their small lines because he's their only guy who can switch. And now, I mean, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, I think, can still get great, good shots against Kristen Thompson, but he still is their best hope. Uh, of course, there was one play where they got the Curry, got the switch onto Thompson, and then he brought over Love's man to get a switch on him and then pulled a three from the hash mark in Love's face and, and drained it. So it's not a panacea, but I mean, Tristan Thompson has to play. Like, if, if he's all right, maybe he's not playing well. And I feel somewhat similar with J.R. Smith. Yeah, all right, they're not playing well, fine, but like taking them out of the game, like their backups aren't going to do a good enough job. So you better just get them playing well or just go down trying to get them to play well instead of just like putting them on the bench. It's. The analogy to when a coach plays their backups because they brought them back in the game, it's sort of the same idea. You know, the guys who were your best players throughout the year, they're still your best players. And Lou deserves a lot of criticism, in my opinion, for not having faith in those guys and giving them the chance to impress in other spots. Like Tristan Thompson, yeah, maybe he's not doing well against Azapchulia. There are a lot of minutes in this game where like Lou in other circumstances has done a nice job of using the Warriors predictable rotations against them he has not done that at all with Tristan Thompson it's like that same logic cannot apply using Tristan Thompson when David West is on the floor using Tristan Thompson when JaVale McGee is on the floor nope can't do it he's not doing well at the beginning of the first beginning of the third let's just sit him it is interesting to me that Lou seems to default towards more offense right like every time things aren't going well it goes towards more offense and you know I know so, some people like Mike Pratt obviously I respect his analysis a lot he said hey you know their bigger problem is the offense that close to the same thing the the bigger problem for them was the offense in game one. And I disagreed just because I thought 
Golden State was getting just such amazing shots. And I thought that the offense was fixable. I thought that those guys could just play a little bit better, but that you have to have some kind of a chance to defend them or you're just, you're toast, right? Like, yeah, Golden State was really good in transition, but I mean, just about all the time, they're getting great shots if they have Steph and KD on the floor together. Like, there's just no real way to stop them. So I think you got to go with your best, especially not if Love is on the floor, especially not if Love is at center. Fry, I thought they should try to spot him against someone like McGee. And in fact, they did do that. Um, And they had success against JaVale. And JaVale had to get taken out of the game. They had to go back to Draymond at center. But yeah, I mean, they just, they got to get these guys going a little bit more, especially Tristan. Richard Jefferson, again, to me, didn't play enough. I thought he, you know, again, he's not a panacea. I don't think this is going to work. Like, they got a lot of problems. And that's because we might be looking at the greatest single season team of all time right now uh certainly i mean i think the best offensive team of all time like i don't th- i don't think that you you know maybe you could say all right if these guys had to go play in a different era with like you know more power offensive teams and the rules were back to the the old uh man-to-man defense rules with a, a legal defense no zone allowed then maybe they'd have trouble but in mean, this team we've never seen anything like this o- offensively before with just these two guys curry and durant the two most efficient volume scorers in the entire league on the same team <laughs> is just completely ridiculous uh anyway that that's an aside well i had but something yeah, I, mean, I wanted I think, to bring up yeah yeah, yeah go ahead it, it was it got lost in the shuffle because his the rest of his first half was absolutely terrible but stephen curry's 10 free throws in the first quarter was one of the more surprising things i've seen in a long time two fouls on 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 three pointers both of which i thought were decent enough calls the one on jefferson i'm sure some people watching on tv had an issue with but like we could see from our angle that he was in the air before the foul ever occurred so to me if I mean, oh, that's oh you're talking about that the fast break one where he the tried to take break, the yeah, euro foul the yeah. richard jefferson euro foul on a guy who's already in the air i mean yes it was a kind of a chris Pauly shot but he was already in the air i mean that's not post contact and then the other one i think was on corver or something like that well but and he had Kurt, another one on the baseline too in the second half where fry he, he got fry in the air as well so uh yeah i mean those those were basically you know eight points that he got out of just you know kind of bs foul drawing um i asked him about that just informally in the locker room uh after game two of the spurs series just in passing and he was like well I was like, you know, how come you started doing that? And he's like, well, uh, or, or no, I think it was like, you know, what made you start doing that? And he said, watching these NBA playoffs. <laughs> so like, and I think like Marcus had an interesting discussion when he was on the basketball analogy talking about how Steph doesn't really didn't really want to do that because he doesn't want to be perceived as like weak or making cheap plays but I think he's gotten past that and he should because he's the most dangerous shooter in the league he could be the most effective of anybody and he's the best free throw shooter in the league too and so the 14 of 14 free throws I mean when you add that to what he's already been doing like it just ups the efficiency any even more and this is something too Habershow had a good article on the whole three-shot foul epidemic he talked to and Dragic and I think it's the same thing as well it really that three shot foul functions really you you know it's great to get the three shots but it functions as more of a constraint play right so it's like now you can't put your hands on Steph Curry because if you do he's gonna rise up for a shot and get a foul call so now you have to be way less aggressive with him when he has the ball in his hands especially and, and he can get to wherever he wants to on the floor and that makes things way, way more difficult too anyway that's that's the side but you're right I mean that that development of him like embracing 
chasing bullshit foul drawing is a huge one. Yeah, and that to, to provide that offensive value when he had six turnovers, could have easily been seven, and was throwing the ball around on the court was significant because that helped kind of provide the base. They were up by three at halftime. But Curry's second half stats are pretty ridiculous. I mean, Curry and Durant, you could do both of them together. Curry, 17 points, five and nine from the field, three of five from three, eight rebounds, seven assists in 16 minutes and 41 seconds. Yeah, that was a pretty good second half for him. And he obviously, the third quarter really has been his time. I mean, I, we talked about Cleveland. I thought that they earned a lot of those 10 steals in the first. I mean, there definitely oh, yeah. were some really bad decisions by stuff, but they got LeBron helping out more, especially you were noting when we were sitting next to each other, how LeBron being able to guard Sean Livingston and kind of roam a little bit really caused problems for Golden State at the rim a little bit. Uh, their pick and roll coverage was much better. They just, even Kyrie, had like some pretty good denials that took them out of what they wanted to run a few times just the overall force that they played with it was much higher but you know they still gave up 67 points I mean it was just like you could see them trying you could see what they're able to do it just and it was just difficult for them to stop these guys because even if you play great defense and force them into something difficult at the end of the clock they got Steph Curry and they got Kevin Durant and and Clay Thompson was able to get rolling a little bit in this game too playing what I thought was more of the game that he needs to play seven of his 12 shot attempts were threes didn't take as many bad shots four of seven on on three pointers like that's more and then of the twos that he took it was all stuff pretty much right at the room i think he had like one mid-ranger and that was it yeah that one mid-ranger was his worst shot of the game was that one off an offensive rebound when he he missed the free throw mcadoo tipped it out to him and he shot the worst shot of the entire game he just rapid fired with like 40 seconds to go and it was it was bad he missed it anyway I thought what was was kind of interesting about the LeBron part and what I was thinking about as I was driving home was when Durant was on living or when LeBron was on Livingston it was closer to what Cleveland was able to pull off in the first three rounds because those teams generally had non-shooters. And so they were able to kind of mask some of their flaws by either letting LeBron freelance or somebody else, you know, just kind of use using that to their advantage. And that's why it was interesting with Livingston on the floor because he's really the only guy that the Warriors play who is like that, who is just, I mean, Pachulia is a zero in a different way, but he set screens and other things. You have to actually have somebody near him for that reason. So it was- yeah. to, And they'll use Livingston that way sometimes too. So- he and Andre have been like the main screeners in pick and roll when they've gone small more even than Draymond has right and I think but that's I been agree a, I mean he, he hangs out in the dunker spot like it's definitely it's definitely easier to roam off of him for sure yeah and so so that opened up LeBron and he has really good instincts and he's played the Warriors so much that he can read some of those particularly the Curry and Draymond passes bef- kind of like as they're doing it and he's fast enough to actually get to the spot like there were a couple where Curry threw the pass and 99 times out of 100 nobody's there and LeBron was there because he knew exactly where it was going and so those helped provide some of that window and then in the second half both because of the personnel and various other constraints those circumstances weren't really there I also thought that the Warriors weren't throwing some of those stupid passes like it's a different idea in terms of expectation but when you're facing a team that just isn't that good defensively you don't have to be as elaborate you don't have to be as tricky or work but like it, it's kind of like a quarterback who's forcing the ball into tight windows when there's another guy who who's more open uh, i think that's that's an excellent point another thing i think we need to talk about is that lebron is wearing down in the second half of these games even if he's playing a slightly lower minutes load 
than it's been in the Eastern Conference playoffs. You know, I mean, he was absolutely dominant. We mentioned his stats. Second half, only four assists compared to 10 in the first half. And he only had six shot attempts in the second half, four out of six, you know, as opposed to 12 in the first half. I mean, he was, he didn't take, I think he might have taken like one mid-ranger all game, but he started settling for some jumpers. I mean, and we saw that in the third quarter of game one as well, when it started slipping away, he's like, all right, I'm going to start jacking up some threes. He made a couple of them, but wasn't able to continue that game plan. And then Cleveland shot really well at the rim in the first half as well. Their offense was great. They took 25 shots at the rim. They made 16 of them, a much better percentage. Second half, down to only eight out of 15 at the rim, and then a further two out of seven in the paint. And that that was difficult. And Another guy who I played by far the worst of any of the major stars in this game, other than Green, if you want to say he was in Faltrell, but he was good when he was out there, uh, was Kyrie Irving. Eight out of 23 from the field. Did have seven assists, but uh, was negative 17, three turnovers, only 19 points. Uh, he has been unable to get to the foul line only uh, two attempts today. Why Warriors, hasn't he been able to be successive, successful? Because Clay Thompson has been great. And Thompson, I think, has done a nice job. And then the Warriors are very good at helping. So the idea that he's not really getting to that spot and Kyrie is so comfortable taking shots that are normally considered bad shots and I would say they are bad shots but he makes more of them than most people do so they're less bad than they would be otherwise he's he's not getting the same level of separation that you usually expect on those bad shots because you know he'll make those some of those bad shots good right he's comfortable he's getting to those and certainly the length of Thompson has been an issue and but even when he's had Curry on him he hasn't been able to be that good now when he had Ian Clark on him he burned him completely twice uh so you know but nate jones was saying that he heard that Kyrie hasn't been doing that well he had confessed that towards the end of the regular season his knees were not feeling very good do you see that does he look like he is not the same guy that he was last year I don't think I could say that considering how he torched Ian Clark I mean not only just in terms of his movement but his handle like he looked in those minutes he had the swagger just like it was last year just like it was Christmas day when he had a good game so I I don't know kinesiology well enough to, to know that definitively but to me when a guy can go through those kind of stretches then I, I never really think about it that way but I'm sure it's I, I'm confident that at this point in the season anything that has bothered you at any point is really bothering you because the cumulative strain even though neither of these teams has played that many playoff games it's these especially these two so far and then whatever's coming these are such high stress minutes because of the way these teams are playing and the fact that they're playing at a ludicrously high surprisingly high pace is makes it even harder than it would have been otherwise carry four of nine in the restricted area not the type of finishing that you normally expect from him obviously golden spate is the best rim protecting team in the league so that certainly contributes to that i haven't seen enough to say and and he also was only one out of five for mid-range that was that to me was actually particularly where i it seemed like he was not creating the separation that we see from him a, a lot of times but and he also could just be getting worn down with the defensive effort, the pace. I mean, the intensity of these games has been absolutely insane. And I think part of why I would like to see more posting up from Cleveland, I think LeBron, I don't know if he had a single post possession in this game at one in the first game. 
and maybe he feels like he just can't be effective out of the post but i think just grinding the offense into the dust is something that they need to do more of maybe just to because they don't have the depth they don't have the quality defensive players like and maybe slowing things down lets thompson get involved a little bit more on the offensive glass but golden state you know i'm not sure that that's the answer either i mean golden state has been able to stop lebron in the post pretty well without having to go into crazy rotations i think especially if Durant is on LeBron. Uh, Iguodala has been able to avoid getting back down. He can strip him a lot. Durant has that size. Like he was able to block Kevin Love's jump hook in the post today for his fifth block. Um, so maybe that's not the answer either, but I do think they should try that more. And I, I still think they need to run in their initial offense, but if they don't have it right away, we talked about this again, they think they need to slow it down and just take the air out of the ball, if only to help themselves rest in some ways, like get recover their breath before they got to go back defensively again. Um, I also think I wanted to give some credit to Ty Lu, who set up some outstanding after timeout plays in this one uh i mean every timeout they're getting a layup they would run some type of a play they even ran golden state's split cuts out of the post with lebron those are the only post possessions lebron had was just to throw a pass and when golden state would switch they set up a play to slip it every time but the problem is that they're not used to doing that type of stuff unless it's just a set play you know and it's a, unless it's called uh richard jefferson had like one nice cut for a dunk that, that wasn't just off a set play but i think they still don't have that kind of institutional knowledge but kudos to lou at least for setting up like i mean they got probably like three or four just like straight up layups off uh after time out plays yeah i thought that was a, a good point to bring up and something that i'm i've been sitting sitting around like even during the second half of this game wondering is what other buttons does Ty Lu have other than trying shump not not shump sorry jr and tristan thompson more because the report is they, they went- might start shump that was oh the, my the god from McMenamin is they they might start him even though he was cramping up today they might start him yeah he had to get an IV I believe and Shumpert he's just so bad offensively though it's really like Jefferson at least can hit an open three Shumpert like and and Jefferson like doesn't do anything stupid offensively Shump just takes some really bad shots he gets wild out of transition like tries to drive to the basket like you know if he if he could just like tighten his game up I think he could be really good but he just he makes like four or five boneheaded plays every game that just like cancel out a lot of the good he does like that fast break foul on Durant for an and one when Durant was like 70 feet ahead of him and he had no chance of stopping him you know he had like a couple of just wild drives to the basket or he had like a, he had like a step back from deep mid-range from what I remember and I'm just like yeah I, I where I thought I for a second I thought it was Kyrie Irving just because it was such a bad <laughs> shot and I was like wait and I, I was looking and because they're wearing those black you know black uniforms and I was like wait that's Shump what the hell's going on and I, I so so you think about those different guys and I just go okay like Kyle Korver we talked about this after game one I don't think Kyle Korver is the answer in this series the Warriors just know how to attack him they've done a good job well uh, Korver while you mention it they tried to attack him and pick and roll with his his guy as the screener and he did a pretty good job there but the big problem was Golden State just wasn't executing they weren't getting enough separation uh for the guy who rolled to the basket they're just trying to sort of get the switch and they wouldn't switch and then you know there's nothing there and then they finally got Korver late when he was guarding Clay Thompson Clay just did like more of a roll to the three-point line and, and hit a three that, that was a key shot I think in the fourth quarter so I, but I agree him, I mean, he yeah. also smoked him on it it wasn't an ATO it was on an inbound um I think it was in the third yeah quarter. yeah they're 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 22 out of bounds set that they they get teams on all the time um 
And yeah. I think Darren Williams can play better than he did in this game. I, I he, you know, he missed he missed all of his shots, but he, he was. I didn't think he was abysmal when he was out there. But it's like, okay, you know, maybe you can try Channing Fry and Burtz. But it's like Tristan Thompson is has been their third or fourth best player for a long time now, and they need to go with that. Jr. I mean, Jr. is a lot closer to being the answer if we're talking expected value. Jr. versus Shump to me is a pretty clear proposition. And you know, if you're gonna go down with the ship, at least go down with the guys that are actually good yeah smith i mean what a struggle for him in in this one oh for two in 14 minutes failed to score negative 18 four fouls one turnover yeah they got to get more from him and i think they will at home uh we'll see whether these guys like Shumpert, D. Will, who's failed to score i think in the series as well he's like oh for nine in the series um Maybe they'll get more out of Fry Jefferson. I mean, I still think though it's just like like Jefferson's got to play twenty five or thirty minutes a game, even at age thirty seven. He just he gives them just like some kind of switchability and understanding. But then it, it, you know they can always no matter how many switchable guys you have, eventually they're going to go hunt Love, and they're not going to take Love out, even though maybe they and Love didn't play. He only played thirty minutes in this game, so they had some minutes without him, and Love actually had the best plus minus out of their main guys only negative eight james is only negative 11 they, they got killed in the minutes where he was off the floor obviously yeah i'm not sure what the answer is i don't i i think that there probably will not be one uh i still think they can do a better job and a great way to involve jr more is really get him some true pick and pops at the three-point line um, but he's just made a lot of defensive mistakes as well. You know, whether he's guarding Curry or Thompson, uh, he was really good on Thompson in last time and just lost him a bunch of times this time. Uh, so, and he's been a little spacey defensively. The Warriors have been able to attack that, but he's just going to have to play better. Like he, he's got to be out there. He, he's got to play better for them to, to be competitive in this series. Is there anything else that you think is a, an important part of the story of this game that we haven't discussed? Andre Iguodala did not look great to me. I, I thought he looked much better in game one. Physically, Iguodala did not have... You can tell when he's really right, when he's pushing it hard in transition with the ball in his hands and running the lanes. We did not see that from him. He got pressured up on the perimeter, didn't really look comfortable. But he still gives them enough as another option on LeBron James, especially when Kevin Durant has to go be play at the four or the five, that he's still a valuable player. He hit a three, still not looking great there. He had one dunk. But you could tell that as soon as the game was in hand, he was the first guy to sub out that Kerr went to before he even subbed out any of his other main guys. So you can tell they're very cognizant of trying to preserve him absolutely as much as possible and and that he, even though he looked good in game one, there's still, uh, Andre even admitted that he was surprised that he felt as good as he did in game one. And so it's going to be, I think it's going to be a game to game thing for him to see how he looks. And, but you know, they haven't really needed him that much. You know, I mean, they, even Sean Livingston, Sean Livingston would probably be like the best perimeter defender on the Cavs team. And he's like number five on the Warriors. Yeah, it was funny. I was doing a, I was doing a thing and for, for some of my work about the, you know, Livingston and his limitations relative to Iguodala at full strength and then i was i was kind of sitting there going yeah like cleveland could really use a guy like him at this point at this moment yeah i mean cleveland did not turn it over that was impressive remember they had the 20 turnovers in game one only nine in this game they'll just hit some more threes maybe at home you know i I still think that they have a a decent chance of winning game three you know i'd put them at eh, at about like you know the more i think about it i've I said when I went on the Basketball Analogy podcast for a little bit today that I give him like a 55, 60% chance winning game three. I probably wouldn't put it that high. I'd actually probably maybe say that's closer for the Warriors, but they definitely could win a home game and maybe they could win another home game. But uh, 
even if they do that which you say maybe they have a 25 percent chance of winning both of those games then the warriors are still in a dominant position coming back home with it tied at 2-2 with two of the next three at home so yeah i mean their chances are are you willing to declare the series over yet no i'm not i mean first of all you have the direct precedent of last year and while i do think these two teams are different but lebron is special enough and Kyrie can play so much better than he has that i would i would consider writing off almost every other team but cleveland deserves that sort of deference i would say all that but I mean, Golden State, like, how are they going to stop them from scoring 120 points every game? You know, it's really just unless there's like some kind of an injury or just or like Steph gets in foul trouble for a long time, which actually that came very close. I mean, they were lucky that Draymond was the only one who got in foul trouble because in the first quarter, I think Steph and KD both had two and Draymond got three uh, or he had three within like three seconds into the fourth quarter or third. Jeez, no, let's try the second quarter. We'll we'll say every quarter until we get it right. A couple a couple seconds into the second quarter uh, here at 2:47 a.m. Yeah, so that that's just I don't see how they stop them unless Golden State just has like a really bad game and they kind of had their bad turnover game in this one. They had their bad shooting game in game 1, uh still put up 113 it's going to be extremely tough uh for them and tyloo has definitely been searching he's tried just about everything and uh, other than you know playing is i mean i think tristan thompson is their third best player against the warriors just because love is giving up just as much defensively as he's scoring on offense anything else you wanted to say before we uh move on to the jazz no except that i'm going to be very interested in the first like six minutes of game three because i remember a couple of the games in Cleveland last year really swung at that very very beginning where Cleveland yeah. put the Three Warriors in six, a hole. Yeah, yeah, and if if they if they can pull that off, then they have a good chance. But if the Warriors just really put put it to the put the pedal to the metal, and they've done really well starters versus starters so far in this series, if they do that another time that could really start to break the spirit of the Cavs. Two more and things. Their fans. Yeah, yeah. Two more things. You know, I I have the theory that to come back, like you have to do it defensively. I think once Cleveland gets behind it is really hard for them to come all the way back and take a lead because they just can't stop golden state you know once they get down it's like we can't stop these guys enough to come back uh i mean maybe at their best they can score with them and lou especially when he gets down he always goes for more offense and i think that that kind of backfires so i think cleveland has to get out to an early lead i think you're right that that is extremely important not that any lead necessarily is safe against this warriors team either and then the other thing you know talking about predictions for the rest of the series i thought a bean had a good way of putting it which is essentially anyone saying that the cavaliers are going to win a game in this series is like giving them the benefit of the doubt like nothing that we've seen in these first two games gives you really much faith it's just simply like all right they got lebron they did it last year they have these guys they got to break out at some point you know but if you're just watching these games i mean i think they took cleveland's best shot in the first half of this game and just destroyed them in the second half so all right we'll uh move on to the jazz in a second here but first this ad for the mattress that i sleep on helix sleep when my girlfriend and i moved in together i had like this 10 year old mattress and she immediately told me i needed to get a new one and we wanted to get a california king that would fit pretty well we tried another direct order mattress company that has just the exact same model for everyone. I was skeptical, but their marketing said, oh yeah, you know, it's it's great for everyone. Like you don't need uh, choices. Like this simplifies it. Well, it turns out I did need a choice because that mattress company was very uncomfortable. I, my back hurt. I ended up having to return that one. 
And so she was like, all right, I'm going to find another one. And she found Helix Sleep. We went through their two to three minute questionnaire. You can customize the temperature of the mattress that you prefer. You put in your height and your weight and they will build a mattress profile just for you. Even if you have different preferences, you can even get it split down the middle. But because we're so good at compromising, we didn't have to do that. Seven to 10 days later, your custom mattress arrives. It's in a box about the size of a set of golf clubs. Open it up. And it's ready to go that night. And it's been the best mattress that I've ever had for the two years since we got it. So I was like, all right, they should do some podcast advertising. They have a better product than this other brand that does podcast advertising. I'll get in touch with them. I actually DM their company Twitter account. And we started doing some ads almost two years ago. And uh, they're a sponsor even so now because plenty of Dunkdown listeners have liked the product as well. If you want to get started with Helix Sleep, helixsleep.com slash capspace. They'll get you $50 off your order. Helixsleep.com slash Capspace that'll let them know also that you came from us. Helixsleep.com slash capspace. All right, let's get to the Utah Jazz offseason now. I was glad that someone messaged me on Twitter saying, Hey, where's the Utah Jazz offseason preview? And because we've been doing it generally after teams have gotten eliminated, I was like, Oh, we already did that. And I looked back and I was like, Oh, wait, no, actually, we didn't already do that. And we need to. So we're going to start off here. This is one of our favorite teams, one of the most interesting offseasons coming up here. And in fact, so interesting that when I had to create some exercises for our students to do at Sports Business Classroom last year, I based it on this Utah Jazz offseason because there are just so many interesting permutations, some of which have been removed by the fact that they extended Rudy Gobert. So his salary will now jump from $2.1 million all the way up to $21 million this year. They could have actually had a, uh, some extra cap space, but they got him on a, a discount deal over the next four years, basically a four-year $100 million pact. But of course, the big issue is the pending free agency of one Gordon Hayward. Right. But it's good to look at it kind of as a collective because I think that's going to be the way Gordon Hayward looks at it. So you have Gordon Hayward that's a free agent, but you also have George Hill that is a free agent. And I thought that he made a meaningful difference in terms of Utah. I mean, the, the their lack of a point guard last year was a big part of the reason they didn't make the playoffs. And then they were, you know, they were a competitive team throughout the season, despite dealing with just massive, massive injuries. And so it all does run together. And why that's so interesting is because of the timing, because because both Hill and Hayward, with Hayward being the more important one nominally by a significant degree, happening at exactly the same time. Yeah, and you have to say, if you're Utah, it's a rather harrowing situation right now, because if you go into the offseason with George Hill, if he leaves and you re-sign Hayward, you really have no way to replace Hill other than by maybe making a trade. And, and at that point, you would have to send back some bad salary, probably in the form of Alec Burks, who has about two years left on his contract at 11 million per he has two years he has two years left and it's about 11 million per we'll say it more accurately that way and then so you're now gonna have to throw in even more resources for that and gordon hayward might say hey you know if you don't have a plan to get me a point guard like why do i want to go here why wouldn't i just go to boston where my old college coach brad stevens is and i'll have a much better chance to compete we'll be in the east we won't have to i mean maybe we'll at least have a little better chance against cleveland than i would trying to beat the warriors with the same cast of characters uh that just got 
got completely smoked by them this year and wasn't even close in, in a sweep so on the other hand though i mean utah can pay george hill as much as they want to but because they have full bird rights on him after the trade he's finishing up a five-year 40 million dollar deal that he signed with indiana when he went there but utah doesn't necessarily want to pay him that much i mean and it sounded like they offered him if not the absolute max that they could in a renegotiation extension close to it it was basically would have been three years and over 80 million dollars in new money and so now do you want to pay george hill age 31 more than that do you just have to do it otherwise you're going to lose gordon hayward and now you've got some luxury tax concerns coming up with rodney hood a free agent dante exum a free agent next year it's a very difficult situation and that's why perhaps now that hill has signaled that he apparently believes that he has some absolutely exorbitant offer out there on the market or he wouldn't have turned down that renegotiation and extension or he just wants to go somewhere else too he's unrestricted they have this intriguing situation where they're actually under the cap by 13.6 million dollars right now and they could make a trade to take on salary at the draft uh and maybe move on from boris dia as well who's non-guaranteed for 7.5 million next year year and maybe get their point guard that way and now either you're protected if Hayward leaves or you know so you have at least a, a decent point guard then anyway or uh you have a good advertisement for Hayward to have him stay because we have a point guard even if we may lose George Hill I try to run be creative and run through a lot of possibilities when I do anything with this sort of work I had not considered the idea of using that space during the draft time before and it's a great idea you know obviously it, the intel on George Hill things that we don't know is significant because if you because also also if you do that George Hill's an unrestricted free agent he might see that as a sign and do whatever but if you feel that whatever the odds are that you're comfortable with that he's that there's a real chance that he's going to leave there are some legitimate point guards on the market and we talk a fair amount about the logistics of when you when a team figures things out too late and then they have to deal with everything else like I mean it worked out beautifully for Miami this year but you know Wade deciding later in the process was harder for them Kevin Durant with Oklahoma City is another good example of this teams could be really proactive and my favorite fit depending on the assets required to get him obviously would be Eric Bledsoe because Bledsoe does not make that much sense on the timeline that the Suns are on right now also the Suns might be looking at a point guard anyway so they might actually be weakening their own leverage to do that and Bledsoe is cost controlled for a couple more years which matters for the Jazz because as you said their other players are about to get more expensive too not only Rodney Hood but if they're going to retain Derek Favors even if his injury history is there he's still going to be making more than he than he will be owed this coming year yeah and there's some thought that they could trade favors away as well which is something we can talk about yeah i mean if i were phoenix i mean i definitely would be much more interested in taking a point guard at four than any of the wing prospects we haven't done De'Aaron fox yet but i think i would probably have dennis smith although there are definitely some concerns about how he would fit in especially in a culture like phoenix that has like a lot of young guys already um but even you know maybe De'Aaron fox as well i haven't decided yet whether i would have him above all those wings but certainly you might this is a point guard heavy draft and Bledsoe is someone who has value and as you mentioned is not on the timeline what would be a fair price for him I mean does Utah really have the assets to go and get him what is in uh, their pocket right now in terms of assets so in terms of high-end picks they're not exactly strong because they have 24 and 30 in this year's first round and then they have a lottery protected first from the Thunder which is not you know it's not bad but it's not great I would say what makes them more interesting is their combination of players that are on under contract and favors could be fascinating for the Suns for two reasons one He's a good player who I think you can make an argument could fit with either 
Dragonbender or Marquise Chris. So you could run some different stuff with that, depending on how they feel about Tyson Chandler. Maybe they can try to trade him too. Not sure that'll work. But also because Derek Favors, like the Jazz dealt with with George Hill this year, he's eligible for renegotiation and extension. And so if they like him and they can figure out a price, they can add to his value this year when they're cap. They don't have that much cap space. It's not that valuable. And secure a guy who's still young, who could be intriguing with the rest of their core. They could also, you know, maybe they want to take a flyer on Dante Exum. Maybe they want to take a flyer on, I wouldn't say necessarily Lyles or Burks, but maybe they're interested in one of those two guys. Like there are ways that they can make this work that I think are worthwhile. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, and they have that OKC pick. I mean, if I were phoenix now remember phoenix has a bunch of draft assets in the future with those miami picks next year top seven protected 2021 unprotected i might be interested in maybe like a utah pick at least one of them that's like lightly protected further into the future in the hopes that just like maybe hayward leaves and they're not that good or something like that you know you give yourself a little more upside there i mean if they were to throw in both the first rounders they have this year remember that that first rounder they have from golden state which is number 30 this year they actually got in the andres bedrins brandon rush richard jefferson trade uh in the fall of 2013 going way back to there uh, i guess that trade worked out for the warriors it was a lot riskier at the time because both the 2014 pick and this pick were unprotected but uh number 30 is about as good as you can get when you send out an unprotected pick um and then that okc first what about like all three of those and alec burks for bledsoe i'm not sure that phoenix would be interested in that type of a deal because they already have these picks in the future and they've got a ton of young guys and it's kind of like you know maybe they could then make a trade for someone else but you know bledsoe is still a pretty good player and favors is a little younger than bledsoe and you know might age a little better you would think but he's got his health concerns as well maybe phoenix training staff thinks that they could help out with that um but maybe there could be a deal to be struck there who else is on that list for you of guys that they might be interested in utah's a little bit different if you think hayward's coming back because you don't need necessarily right. that point guard that's as reliable in terms of creating so you don't have to go for that trademark you know like ricky rubio goran Dragic type of guy you could look well, for well some... but it's got to be someone who's sexy enough to make him stay though right right well i think so so i think Dragic could be intriguing depending on what Miami wants to do and there I, I, I was working on their offseason preview day that's a whole other kettle of fish but yeah I mean I, and I don't see I don't see Miami trading Dragic really uh you know it, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me unless, yeah it's, I mean, especially I they, before because yeah. this would have to be consummated before J- July 1st like that's that's what makes this different yeah. like they can't no yeah I mean the, right the, the trade could be made afterwards you could just trade Burks potentially as well and, and he would make up sure most for of the a lower value guy that's true. that you need but yeah now yeah. you can't just like take on the salary now and you've got to throw in some more now because of the fact that Burks is a bad contract for two more years as well you got to throw in some more value there because he's been hurt I mean I think he could potentially get back to being an okay player I liked him before he got injured uh but you know now he's three years removed really from having much of an impact and so I, I had thought about the idea of somebody like Matthew Del Vadova but the problem with Delhi is that if Hayward leaves he's not a terrible contract by any stretch of the imagination I think he's a good guy to have on roster but it doesn't he doesn't bring what they need at that point so then you're you're making a risky decision yeah and there are a lot of guys that i think i would like to consider if you know but are they sexy enough for Hayward? like someone that i might try to go after would be like just to give yourself another option in addition to exum who has not shown anything to indicate he's ready as a starting point guard yet uh you know emmanuel moutier could be someone that they might look at jordan clarkson uh reputed to be on the market with the lakers though he's more of a combo guard uh we mentioned del 
Cordova as kind of a stopgap guy. Rubio, another one, especially if these Derek Rose to Minnesota rumors are true. Uh, if the Magic were to take a point guard uh, with their, what are they, number six? Five or six? I think there are five. Uh, but if they were to take a point guard and maybe move on from him, there's a new regime there now. The old regime was very entrenched with Peyton. The new regime may not be so enamored. Uh, you know, he might still have some potential, but these are all guys who are like, okay, maybe they could work out a year or two in the future and have some potential. And Gordon Hayward probably ain't trying to hear that. Right. And and that's a challenge. And also a lot of the other kind of like mid-level point guards, so guys that are clear starters, but are not, you know, all NBA contenders are free agents this year. So those guys are unavailable, you know, Drew Holiday, Jeff Teague, those type of guys. So it's a narrower pool that they're dealing with, but there are still some intriguing fits. Well, let's talk about where they would be if Hayward were to return on his maximum. And there's some idea that maybe he could sign a three plus one because he's got seven years of experience now that would let him get back on the market at age 29, 30 with eligible for the 35% max, whether he could actually garner that at that point remains to be seen but he's been pretty healthy through his career and probably a guy who's got good size and and can shoot so should age okay that might be something that he would try of course if he wants to sign that three plus one then utah's financial advantage largely disappears the only advantage they could offer is eight percent raises instead of five percent uh because their big appeal is is the extra year and if they were to offer that they would be able to give him a five-year contract worth 175.7 million as opposed to four years 130.3 million that he could get elsewhere but again if he only wants a four-year deal that's and many teams will be making that argument to him uh, particularly the Boston Celtics, uh, then that financial advantage disappears a little bit. You know, if I were him, I might want to lock in on a four plus one instead, uh, nonetheless, just because of where he is. Uh, well, and, and the other thing the that league. ties in there is, while we don't know exactly where it's going, it looks like we're going to be in a pretty stable financial time for the NBA. So it's not like he's, the, the security is a very different thing because you're not locking in when the cap is skyrocketing. So the risk proposition right. is different and it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see how a couple of different guys handle that but what i would do with the jazz as much as we like to talk about the idea of the difference between five and four is just say hey whatever you want if so if he yeah. prioritizes that then you have the advantage if he doesn't then it's a reduced advantage but maybe that's what he wants and you make it happy make him happy but yeah what, he, he could also go for a one plus one and then if he does make all nba next year he could opt out and sign the full designated veteran max i don't think his chances of making all nba next year are, are particularly good um Anything else you wanted to say there about his contract and free agency? Because I want to just talk a little bit about what the scenario is if he does return where they no, are. That's, cap-wise. A, that's exactly where I wanted to go. So we're good. Yeah. So let's say he resigns. He's making thirty point three million this year, his maximum. They're now right at the cap. And that means, you know, George Hill presumably is going to be getting at least 20 million. Joe Ingles, who we haven't talked about at all yet, is a restricted free agent, age 29. They have full bird rights on him, so they could pay him whatever they wanted to, in theory. Uh, his cap holds only $4 million, but if you're over the cap, that doesn't really matter. So hard to imagine. I mean, if they, you were going to really re-sign Ingles, who I would expect to get something on the lines of, you know, a three-year, $30 million deal at a minimum, uh, if it were an open market, maybe it takes less to stay in Utah due to loyalty, or maybe the restricted market depresses his uh, his value a little bit. But, you know, if Hill's going to be at least $20 million, probably more than that. Ingles is 10 Now you're $10 million over the tax. Uh, and and while Utah has saved money these last few years by being under the cap uh, and, and their trust basically plows all profits back into the team, 
you still would think that you know maybe a slight luxury tax payment could be in order for them but not you know 10 million dollars over the tax to where you know you're now you're basically spending like you know 150 million dollars or on salary this year that seems pretty unlikely well and also so, couple yeah. that couple that with the idea that rodney hood in particular is going to get a right. big pay raise next year so if you're committing to a team that's around the around the tax line yeah they have Derek favors who they might want to retain and joe johnson coming off their books after next year but exum is going to get a pay raise hood is going to get a big pay raise and you know they might want to use their mid-level exceptions and everything like that and so your team gets very expensive very quickly because all of these players that were on value deals for years that you were able to take advantage of they're all going to be properly paid at the minimum yeah and so this is also assuming now that you're moving on from boris dia and his non-guaranteed 7.5 million you're moving on from another free agent shelvin mack you're just giving the backup point guard job to exum and hul netto which i think they can handle uh you're probably not bringing back jeff withy at this point uh who actually provided some value minutes for them as a backup center unless his market is less than i would expect it to be really if you're gonna bring back both ingles and hill and hayward you probably need to move on from either joe johnson or alec burks and maybe they would just say hey you know what like if we can trade away one of these first rounders to get rid of burks we'll do that uh you know if you got to start doing two that's a question again you know we were saying we think that like 20 million in dead salary is you know equal to about a, a first round pick you know which first round pick is it that could be another aspect of the negotiations as well and uh you know and maybe teams wouldn't view burks as entirely dead dead salary just because there's some chance that he could come back but he basically hasn't played in two years and he hasn't been effective in two years uh and he's i mean got shut down again with recurring uh knee soreness so you have to look at him as pretty dead uh you know you mentioned they could trade favors as well potentially do 12 million this year in the last year of his contract that might be another option but they need favors i I think i mean i I still think he's their best power forward option they it's going to be hard for them to stop people uh without him at power forward and they need a backup center too which you know jewel bomb boy would be the only guy left on their roster so a, a lot of questions here you know is would trey lyles be ready to step into a starting role i don't think he's really ready defensively um joe johnson can't play that many minutes so if you move on from favors and you you know what are you going to get back from him you're going to presumably give out salary uh not take much back i mean they need him to be good you know and, and he he could be an unbelievable player next year if he can get back get back to where he was uh for most of last year before he really started getting felled by these knee and back injuries the other approach that the jazz could go through and i would recommend this considering their contracts is just starting the year over maybe at a level where they're comfortable with and then just basically saying we should be able to get to get out of this however they want to do it whether that is that they they want to move on from favors or give up an asset at that point because they will still have assets to to unload alec burks the problem with that is from what i can tell it doesn't look like there are going to be a ton of teams especially if like the sixers spend this year there might not be a ton of teams that are just looking to add salary at the deadline this year even for assets there'll probably be a couple but it might not be as many as in prior years and that means those teams can extract a king's ransom which will be fascinating moving forward just to see if those teams get more leverage kind of like they used to yeah now there could be a bit i mean you remember think of like the trade that memphis had to make in i think it was 2013 to get rid of just three million bucks of most spates's salary they had to give up a first rounder just to do that you know so 
yeah, as that market gets tighter and we're in a flat cap environment, uh, it really, those teams that are able to maintain fiscal discipline and stay under the cap during the year, you know, and especially because you, in terms of actual money, you only have to pay them for a third of the year if you get someone like that at the trade deadline. So that, that could be an approach as well. Well, let's discuss the nuclear option too here. Uh, if Gordon Hayward does leave, if you also have lost George Hill, you move on from Diaw, no Joe Ingles cap hold. At that point, you probably would want to think about bringing Ingles back. But I mean, you've got, you would have about 30 million to play with, 26 million if you were to retain Ingles. At that point, I see one of two possible scenarios. Either you say, hey, you know what? We're just going to rebuild completely around Rudy Gobert. Derek Favors can be a free agent next year. Eh, maybe they could try to renegotiate and extend him, uh, you know, again, which the, those talks failed, but maybe they could get him at a little bit of a discount. Probably not. He's probably going to want to play next year and rebuild his value, which is kind of at an AD right now. But maybe you could have those type of talks and then you just build this awesome defensive team around Favors and Gobert going forward. You know, you're not going to contend in the West, but maybe you could be around the bottom edge of the West playoffs without Hayward. Hope that Exum and Hood develop enough to give you some offense. They would certainly really struggle to score, I think. So you could kind of just keep the team together as best you could try and be decent next year sneak into the playoffs and then maybe see where you're at reevaluate next summer or you can just blow it all up at that point if Hayward is left except for Rudy Gobert trade favors trade Joe Johnson maybe you re-sign Ingles and then maybe you could try to look to look to move him if use the restricted free agent market to depress his value and then you know at 29 hey he's not in our timeline anymore uh you know, just say, hey, Dante Exum, you want the keys this year? Let's see whether you can play or not before you're going to be a restricted free agent. You're the starting point guard, whether you can handle it or not. Trey Lyles, hey, we think you can be pretty good. You're uh, you're going to be our third big. Um, you're going to play 25, 30 minutes a game. Rodney Hood, here's all the shots you can handle. Go for it. Uh, but and maybe even Alec Burks, if you can get healthy again, you're going to have a big role. Let's see if we can rehab your value a little bit. So those are kind of the two approaches I could see if, in fact, Hayward were to leave. And they could try to get into the free agent market and maybe sign some stop gaps if they try option one but i think they would be better off even just like leaving that space open and maybe being a buyer again to try and refill the coffers a little bit this is a really rough year to try to try to get stop gap guys because a lot of the right. s- supply is low so you're going to see players that could be stop gaps getting way more money than that and then the other guys that maybe you don't that are in that range you wouldn't want to give them multiple years things like that so maybe they would add in i don't know why i feel like throwing this out there maybe just i don't know how just fans feel about the idea of bringing back darren williams is kind of like a gap filler type thing that would be interesting i'm not sure that's what he wants but maybe and the wing market is is the real challenge here because there just aren't those guys you know the players they could do that but the jazz could also become something they've been at other moments in time and i thought they did a wonderful job of this with boris diaw of a place for dumping not bad salary but salary of players that aren't that aren't usable for their current team and i thought that was a wonderful move with with Diaw for that exact reason. And so maybe you're not taking on the Myers Leonard's of the world, but if a team says, hey, we don't have enough space to get the guy we want, and we have this guy who's not that bad, we could we could throw him in. The problem is there aren't as many of those contracts in the league now because so many guys signed terrible contracts last summer. Another thing they might consider as well is maybe trying to combine uh, the 24th and 30th pick. They also have 42, which is, I believe, the Pistons pick going back to uh, that Reggie Jackson trade. And then they have their own number 55 pick as well. So maybe, you know, 20, 24, 30, 42. You have to imagine a couple of those guys, at least especially if they think they can bring back Hayward, would be Euro stash kind of guys. But maybe they feel like, hey, we've got three picks that are in the top 45. Maybe we can combine 
combine those, try and move up and just get our one guy, you know, in the late teens, something like that. Um, I, I mean, the, the I'm not sure necessarily whether the market would support that, but maybe their scouting staff has identified a guy they think could really help them. And then, you know, just in terms of roster spots, they're a pretty deep team. They might be a little impacted as well. So maybe that's why they would want to consolidate there. And also, it's just the idea of, for them, depending, of course, on which path they go through, of just the numbers of guys on their roster, because Utah does not have many free roster spots. This was something we discussed a little bit with, I remember why I was critical of the ball and boy, like the full contract they gave him was because he's now he's fully guaranteed for next year. You could obviously cut him if you had to, but they have a lot of these committed and their free agents are mostly guys that they would enjoy bringing, that they would prefer to bring back. So we'll have to see. Is he fully guaranteed for next year? I believe I believe he fully guaranteed on January. Like they, what they did is they did the kind of the reverse reverse idea of usual, which is that you fully guarantee for that season on around in mid January. I think he did that, but for the next year. Yes, that is correct. Okay, that's I was confused. I had in my sheet that his guarantee date was one ten, and I thought that was uh, that's really what confused me. I think so. Yeah. Um. But anyway, yeah. A couple other small notes here. Hold. Neto non-guaranteed until January 10th I would absolutely keep him around I think he could be a quality backup point guard he's making the minimum no reason not to do that we mentioned Dia his guarantee date of July 15th for that 7.5 million dollar salary this is the last thing I wanted to talk about where is George Hill getting this awesome offer from that's like going to beat what Utah would be willing to give him and then you know what would your offer be to George Hill if you were Utah concerning that let's start at just potential other suitors for Hill uh I don't see that many there aren't that many Sacramento is a possibility Philadelphia is a possibility but like Orlando doesn't have the cap space they have too much money tied up in other guys so who, who doesn't have the cap space sorry Orlando oh yeah okay because they have they're paying 30 million to centers so makes it a little bit harder yeah the Knicks um, the Knicks yeah, are the interesting Knicks. because the Knicks could make a, a pretty lucrative offer but they also have the benefit of being this situation that some guys really like I don't know George Hills from Indianapolis I don't know if he's one of those guys who's just wants to live in New York totally possible so you have that as well and also if the Knicks moved mellow they would have enough space to do whatever the heck they want so those those are the kind of the main suitors for me I can't imagine like Denver really throwing out that kind of an offer and then the one that really hurts is New Orleans I'm also thinking about it because I just their offseason preview just published on Sunday so I've been thinking about them a little bit they wouldn't have the ability to make an offer but I'm sure they would want to yeah maybe if they moved on from Ashik they might be able to think about that Brooklyn has been mentioned as a suitor for Hill I've never really quite understood that because they already have Jeremy Lin, although granted, maybe only for one more year because he signed a two plus one last summer. So maybe that that's the thought there. But I think they could use their space a lot more, a lot smarter. And again, you know, it's just taking a taking on bad contracts kind of dumps situation. And then remember also, you mentioned Sacramento. I would be shocked if Sacramento doesn't draft a point guard with one of their two picks, right? Right. Uh, five and ten. And, and so are they going to want to spend a premium to bring in George Hill at well, that point, I mean, think about it. Like, he, think with the money he turned down, he's got to think he's got at least four years and a hundred million out there, probably. And remember, I mean, also with Philadelphia, it, it just, like they're the they're the rumored place for a lot of different guys. The talk from Brett Brown has been, while I disagree with the terminology, that Ben Simmons is going to be their point guard. So while George Hill can play off the ball, he's one of the best catch and shoot guys in the league. Do you really want to pay him, especially an older guy? Do you want to pay him that three or four years to to kind of be a different fit? Like, I'm not sure that that's the right use of their cap space either 
Yeah. And for Hill, I mean, it's got like, it's going to be a difficult situation because he turned on this offer from Utah. He got a new agent, presumably because the old agent was like, hey, you should probably take this, <laughs> take this offer. And Hill was like, no. So, or maybe he just doesn't really like it that much in Utah as well, even though, yeah, I think he's a fantastic fit there. And so can he go back to Utah? Can they find common ground if he doesn't have that much of a market? And now they're actually offering him less than they would have in the renegotiation and extension. And we mentioned what their tax issues are as well. I mean, do they really want to pay him 25 million a year, even for three years? I mean, that's a lot of money for someone like Hill. So I think this could be a case of him really misreading the market just because of how much money went out there last year. We're going to see a lot of those guys, but it's going to be fascinating. It just, it would really be a shame for Utah if they were to lose both Hayward and Hill, because again, we still never really got a chance to see this team at full bore with Hill's injuries, with Favors' injuries uh, as well. I think Hayward and, and Gobert are a great combination together. And it's worth remembering too, what brought us to this point with Utah was they basically weren't willing to pay Gordon Hayward what he wanted, which would have reported it was like something like four for 50 during extension negotiations in the fall of 2013 at that point i think utah just didn't have an understanding that the cap was going to go up as much as it did then uh in 2014 fall is when that really got announced the new tv deal but you know people who were paying attention to that uh, might have had an inkling that that was coming uh before then and then in restricted free agency utah's approach was all right gordon just go out and i mean and he had like a pretty good year that year but they struggled they're like 25 and 57 or whatever it was uh in 2013-14 and Utah's approach was all right Gordon go out and just get whatever offer you can on the market and we'll just match it uh and he ended up getting a three plus one from Charlotte and if they had just made a competitive four-year offer to him or a five-year offer they'd still have him right now and they'd have him at, at a bargain and kudos to Hayward for saying hey you know what I'm gonna go out and get a, a three plus one bet on myself here who knows whether Utah made a five-year offer but that was a smart move for him and now and he's a free agent much younger with only seven years of experience than premium players like him uh, almost ever are free agents and uh, he's in a very commanding market position right now there's one other thing i want to bring up i agree with all that just to, to make sure how are you feeling about utah's decision to extend rudy gobert at that price now because there are two different parts of it one is they did get him at a discount for four years so they did get there is no fifth year option or anything it's just a straight four-year contract but he would have had a really low cap hold so you can make the argument oh utah was probably wouldn't have used that space anyway but like i just wanted to see how you're feeling about it now knowing knowing what we knew then and knowing what we know now yeah i mean no one knew he would be as good this year as he was like his offensive improvement is unbelievable uh this season we've remarked on that many a time he clearly could get whatever offer he wanted to as a restricted free agent they probably would have to give him a, a five-year max and actually if he were to win defensive player of the year this year which he probably won. I think it'll be Draymond. But if he wins Defensive Player of the Year, he would have been eligible for uh, a designated uh, Rose Rule contract as well. I think I think now you can get those. I have to double check on that, actually. But I think you can get those as a free agent if you qualify as well. Um rather than just an extension but don't quote me on that i gotta actually double check on that but anyway yeah it would have been more for sure over the next few years you would have been starting at 25 million instead of 21 this year the total amount of that contract would have been 146 million over five years instead of 100 over four essentially i still would have just i mean maybe they felt like they learned their lesson if he was willing to take less at that point and he was willing to not get a player option which he might have not been willing to do if he were in a more commanding position as a restricted free agent with a ton of great 
offers potentially out there for him. I probably would have maintained the flexibility though, because that way, even with Hayward's cap hold, which was $24 million, and then basically about another $15 million difference between what Gobert's cap hold is and what he's making now, like they could have gone out in the market and gotten a $20 million player potentially, and, and George Hill wouldn't have them over a barrel like this anymore. You know, they could re sign Hill. I think maybe what they were thinking though at the time was, all right, yeah, we can use all this space. But then what good does that do us? Because once we bring back Hayward and we bring back Gobert, we're going to be in the tax, so we couldn't spend it anyway. But, I mean, they're going to have to spend that now just to bring back George Hill or find another point guard anyway. So it, it would have been nice to have that additional flexibility. I don't feel that strongly about it either way. I mean, there, there are pros and cons, obviously, of each side. And especially after, I think, what happened with Hayward, they're feeling, hey, you know, if we had a chance to get this guy under contract at a good number for four years, like, let's take it. You know, bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Right. And they got him on a discount and Gobert at a three plus one would have been scary for them because he will be at that point, he would have been 28 as an unrestricted free agent. So he even even if he had reached the level be like below what we expect now, he would have gotten a crazy amount of money at that point. So getting getting him for four years is a good thing. I would have tried for five if it was possible, but maybe it wasn't. Yeah, so we haven't even talked about any other free agents really for them. I don't see, I mean, they've got so much depth on this team and they're probably likely going to have tax issues. I don't see them, you know, maybe they'll go with their taxpayer mid-level, uh, to try and get someone if they could offload salary but at that point i mean you could almost just say if we're going to spend that money maybe we should just keep boris Dia, you know at, at 7.5 million instead like he maybe he's a better player and he's only on a one-year contract than someone we could get out on the market we don't know what that market's going to look like yet. i mean they definitely could use someone with a little more juice off the bounce uh because they obviously struggled a lot against golden state switches just having someone who can beat their man one-on-one but that type of player who also has some size defensively not really available in the price range you're looking at so i would not expect them to be particularly active in signing new players unless you know obviously hayward is lost but yeah i mean and then another backup center as well with jeff with the being a, a free agent they have early bird rights on him i might try to bring him back if i could uh, i mean i think he's a good option as like a fourth big uh can block some shots a little bit if when favors inevitably misses time the other thing we alluded to it earlier that I- i've just been thinking about a lot with their offseason is that that we never got to see them at full strength. So there's a possibility we never do, but I'm if they do bring it back or something close to it, I am going to be excited to see what this team can do because you and I have been drooling over their potential for a long time now. Adding George Hill only added to that, but now it actually has to happen. Yeah, and it really, it would be quite an NBA tragedy if we never get to see this team at full strength because I think like if they've been healthy all year, like this could have been like a high 50s win team potentially. I mean, especially, and especially just not getting to see the real Derek Favors was just such a disappointment for me this season. Yeah, he's become underrated in absentia because there was a long time. Granted, it's also because Hill and, or, sorry, Hayward he's a top and top Go- thirty player in the NBA. Yeah, like, I mean H- he Hayward and Gobert improved out of this, but there was a series of time where where we were discussing whether he was the best player on this team. Absolutely. All right, that'll do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you all next time. Till then, Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 